0: Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris.
1: Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. In a lot of ways, Ben Greenman is the perfect wheels-off guest. He and I have been friends for, I don't know, 15 years, something like that. Is that even possible? And um, he is the one of all my friends that when we get together, we have this conversation. We have the conversation that is the platonic ideal of a wheels-off interview. It's just creativity, the meaning of life, the meaning of the creative life, the meaning of the thing that we do, how do we do it, why do we do it? It's always this and it's always fun and he makes me laugh uh, maybe more than anybody else the way his mind works constantly baffles me because it's just it's going on multiple levels at a, a speed that is unrivaled by anyone else I know no offense to all the other smart people I know but god Ben Greenman is he is just a force of nature I'll warn you right now if you didn't notice on the running time as it's listed on this podcast, this episode runs a little long, specifically about three times as long as a normal wheels off. I'm pretty sure we set the record that was previously held by Carl Newman of New Pornographers. It's about an hour and a half long. And um, if you think that's too much of a time commitment, I'll tell you right now it's your loss. Because Ben Greenman has a singular mind and a singular way of expressing thoughts and ideas that is well worth any amount of time you might spend. In fact, I would not have felt bad going even longer. But um, honestly, I had to pee. <laughs> not going to lie. <laughs> I was like, Ben, we got to wrap this up, man. Um, <laughs> Too much information? Sorry. So anyway, I, I hope you guys love this. I think you will love this. There's some I'm trying to think now, there's some F bombs and some other slight cursing. It's nothing nothing you're not gonna hear on any you know given subway ride. I think you're gonna love this. God knows I love love it, uh talking to Ben Greenman. Uh so please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Wheels Off the incomparable Ben Greenman. Welcome to Wheels Off, Ben Greenman. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thank you so much for joining us. For the edification of our listeners, where are you joining us from? I am joining us
2: from Ridgewood, New Jersey, in Bergen County, a suburb north of west of New York City, where I lived for many years.
1: I feel like when I interviewed Harlan Coben, he was in the same town as you.
2: He is. He's, I wouldn't say mere steps away, but I could walk there. Hold on. No, I, I, I could take <laughs> a walk there and be back uh, in 20. So he has a, a big house on a road near here. And that is, in fact, true. He is an author in my town.
1: That's um, super funny. I, I got to interview him pre-COVID, but when I used to go and hook microphones onto people's, you know, clothing, it was weird. Um, ben, so full disclosure, I'll probably have I probably will have just addressed this in the introduction. But you and I are in real life friends and. Uh, when I when I first got approached by the um, the podcast police, upon whom uh, the job rests, to tell everyone like me that they now must have a podcast, right. um, <laughs> my the idea the only thing I kind of could imagine doing was having the kind of conversations that you and I specifically have whenever we get together conversations about how do we do what we do, why do we do what we do, creativity in general, and our specific little things. Um, when i looked in preparation for this at the list of things that you have have written over the years and also even just recently um i then went to see what is the noun form of the verb uh, the adjective prolific and turns out it's proliferation which didn't make any sense to me
2: that's that's me i'm, I'm a proliferation <laughs> it's um yeah it well the one thing i should say just as a as an overture is that it's a it is artificial and a little weird, as you say, we're used to having these conversations in human person, so this arrangement, the window to window, it is the strange kind of overlay. it's like a kind of um there's a there's a little bit of a mental shift to think oh yeah i'm I'm representing to rat what normally or recontextualizing what normally there'd be like coffee in between us or food or alcohol or whatever it depends on the year, I suppose, but it's um now, now, I guess it would be coffee and food, and they uh but yeah, I mean and and I say that by way of saying that when I'm not talking to you about these things, I'm writing as you see, that's pretty much it. I have a wife and two
1: children, they see me now and again, but mostly I'm writing um so what creative project are you working on at the moment, and how does it light you up?
2: There's two that are about to come out and and then a number that I don't know when they'll come out and they light me up in very different ways. So it's interesting and sort of has become the the rhythm of my work. I have two collaborative books coming out within the next month. The memoir of little Steven, uh, Stevie Van Zandt, that he wrote and I edited. and And this is an interesting one because I've done collaborations with other creative artists, mostly in the music world, for years. And I'd say this is the first one where the other person, the the subject, really wrote it. And so my job was primarily as an editor, and that's what I'm credited as. And that was really interesting. It's still, you know, there's still a lot to do in the way of discussing structure, cut this, let's go from here to here. But it was interesting to watch another writer's process that intimately. Uh, More typical, I have a book coming out with Questlove, and we co-write. Uh, You know, he there's a long process that I won't get into because it's sort of boring in the the context like this. But there's a lot of pre-talk writing, submitting the writing, talking it through again, revision. Uh, It's not as point to point. It's more. I don't know what I don't know what clouds are called, but those clouds that are tall and stacked on top of each other, that one. Um, So those two are coming out within the next month. Then I have a lot of personal fiction projects that. Uh, that's the thing I'm accustomed to. And the thing that I do all the time anyway, Uh, they let me up differently than they used to. And, and, you know, I think the world around us has changed. The way that things are supplied has changed, supplied to readers, listeners, viewers. And so my relationship to that kind of work has changed, but I try to get all sides of the brain lit at all times.
1: It seems like... um your fiction m- muscles are getting worked out differently. It's been a little while since, um, what was the most recent long form fiction? Was it the...
2: Uh, it's the novel. It's it's 2013 is the most recent long yeah. form. And, and the long form in general in my life has been the exception. I, I think as a kid, I read a lot of novels because I was a reading kid. I, and, and But as a writer, I came in through journalism and through parody. And I always had a kind of healthy suspicion. Well, I don't know if it's healthy, but I, I said it was healthy because I had it, <laughs> of the novel. They, they strike me as sort of odd and artificial, and it's a big ask. And a lot of times I'm, I'm not, the, the moment you want, which is when you disappear inside the work and your own consciousness has dissolved and you feel uh, more alive because you're less present, that didn't happen often enough in novels. For me, it happened just as often in short stories. And when I started writing a lot of fiction, they were mostly short pieces. Also, I had children, young children, You know, when I, when I was starting to publish, and you know, they're, they're a killer for... There's a, there's a Gwendolyn Brooks quote where she says, it's in a poem, it's not a quote, but she says, people who have no children can be hard and attain a male of ice and insolence and I always liked that cause I always wanted that and I never had it. And, and so it's me writing in a room like this and some little kid knocking on the, it's like the guy, you know, the zoom bomb where the kid comes in in the corner and the mom drags him out. I feel like that was my entire life. And for many years, I also had a day job. So I, I came only to write shorter pieces for most of my life. Then when they do well, publishers say, hey, where's your novel? And then you have to say, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I have it. It's, it. I have it at home. I just have to kind of touch it up and then you have to go write it. So <laughs> I, the, the fiction muscles are always there. The longer form, I'm not sure of. What, what's the equivalent? Is there a songwriting equivalent in your mind of the novel or are you mostly writing short stories?
1: Well, if the novel is the great white whale of fiction writers, or, or I mean, maybe more attainable than a great white whale would be. But um, I guess it would be a concept album or maybe even like a rock opera.
2: And do you, is there ever a case where you really think that's happening? I mean, even the ones that we think are totally legit in that form, the Tommies or whatever, I'm sure there's songs in there that Townsend had that were just great songs that he retrofit in,
1: you know. 100%. Yeah. I mean, how many concept albums have been, you listen back to it and go, oh, wow, I guess these songs are all about divorce or all about, you know, the the economy or whatever. It's more that I, I, and I wonder about this too. So I would say that the the
2: thematically linked short stories, and I've done that a couple of times where they're either explicitly linked characters will appear in different stories or they're thematically linked i think i'm most comfortable there which is maybe the concept album the closest thing to the concept album i mean there's bands oh here i'm gonna do an f-bomb now there's bands like fucked up that are high level concept bands and continue to push at that and they do you know the double album with four sides of 14 minute songs that are themselves each a concept album (laughs) The, the novel to me is strange I'm sure it comes down to issues of concentration and pleasure and you know dopamine distribution in, in the brain and how I, I just at some point wasn't getting off reading novels in the same way. And I don't know if this happens with songwriting, but it, it got to the point where when I started to read a novel, two or three pages in, I just wanted to write. I didn't have the patience to not be making things. So I would keep pulling out of the book to go and write. And that's frustrating. And I didn't feel like it was doing justice to the work. And and because of that, I sort of didn't I would say I probably strategically disrespect the novel. I mean, do you think is there a, a symphony equivalent in in songwriting? Or I mean, what's the longest song you've ever written just as a song where the idea plays
1: out? Um the old 97's most messed up album featured a six and a half minute song called longer than you've been alive. That was sort of a, and I know, right. Perfectly titled. Um, But that, but that was just, you know, a list of, you know, um, things that a a long enduring band slash artist musician encounters. It it wasn't like it was a full plot or anything. I wanted to ask you earlier with the, uh, you said a novel is a big ask. Were you saying that the creation of a novel or the consumption of a novel is a big ask? There's well, both. I think both. I mean, I, I think,
2: and, and I, I, don't, I don't want to disparage, obviously, any writers, because it's, it's a hard thing to do. The thing that I always think is that when, you, when you're reading the newspaper and they say, oh, we found a kid in rural Indiana or in India or, you know, in Key West who's a prodigy. That kid's usually a math prodigy. That kid is almost never a writing prodigy in the novel songwriting sense, because I don't think I don't think you can be a prodigy in that respect for something that requires experience and irony and self-editing and no right answer. You know, there's no one to reward you and say, when you start to do that, oh, you got it exactly right, because you never get it exactly right. <laughs> and so I, I think that. It's a big ask, but I also am mindful. It's tricky. I mean, I came up through journalism. And so in journalism, you're always thinking of the audience and you're always thinking of the medium. Uh, an editor will come along and lop off a paragraph that's not doing its work. You're, you're, you're brutally edited and you're always fighting for column inches. And, and they used to cost money. Now they are bits and they don't cost mo- you know no, money, no such thing anymore. But they... So you think of the audience, you think of their time, you think of their expenditure and their investment in what you're doing. And so that's part of it too, that economy. For me, is it a big ask? Uh, Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess you, I guess I know that feeling. And when I've done it, when you're 150 pages deep into something and you're really rolling with characters and the, and the plot is complexifying and you're pleased by what you're doing, but 90% of the time more I feel I can get that out of a story and it's more fun. I like the compression of it and I like the trickery of it. I think there's, we can talk a little bit about trickery and parody and, and sort of serious comedy in, in artwork, but in a novel that can get tiresome, it happens, but that's the big ask. If you're a and Infante and you do three trap tigers and you have pages where there's a page next to a page that's a mirror image in the middle of a novel and somebody's reading through it. It can just seem like you're, I don't know, it can seem like you're trapping someone in an amusement park and not letting them go. The, the story, you give them what you can. And I believe, and I'm sure songwriters have to believe this, that a lot of the work of the art happens in the minds of the people consuming it after you're done. And so I want them to get away from my work with a little piece, some weird phrase or some unexpected activity and then go and complete it. I don't know. I just don't, a novel feels like uh jailing
1: <laughs> at some level. There, <clears throat> Stephen King in his on writing describes the telekinesis that is writing. And I forget exactly what it, what it is that he, um, he has a description of like a candle on a table or a flower or whatever, but he, said, he describes it in you know, just a rough sketch. And then, then he describes how it comes to be in your mind. But yeah, it's the, the work is, it's a collaboration, the thing that you do with your readers.
2: And he's a great example because he also says, or has said, I don't know if this is in on writing, but when he was uh, chemically enhanced and chemically dependent, and he was writing these books at this incredible rate, And there wasn't the same level of self-editing and you have a book like, oh, I don't know, the Tommy knockers or something, which is you just feel like you're stuck in a room with him and he's just doing line after line and then describing things at great length manically. (laughs) And that I'm not saying that's not a worthwhile proposition. It's just one particular kind of experience. And the thing I was going to say before is that I've read with, you know, all kinds of writers and I read with novelists and often they're very good. And they write these very stately well-organized novels about a time and a place and characters moving through that time and a place. Sometimes I feel left cold by it. I don't know if it's that I've, I'm sure this happens in, in songwriting that I've read too many things. So I'm looking for something slightly more, I don't know, slightly more particular. I'm not sure why. I don't think that what they did is easy. I think it's very difficult. I think they do a really good job. It's a very important skill. It's just not mine. I think I'm looking for something more subversive, and I don't. You can do that in a novel. People do, but you also that big ask can be unanswered. You can write. You can write a novel that's extremely subversive and complicated and plays with all the edges. And what will often happen, more often than not, is people just won't bother. They don't. Why would they uh, enter that? You know that house of mirror? that madness that you've created for them, you know?
1: Um, the first book of yours that I came to know and fall in love with, um, I think I must have read tons of things by by you in The New Yorker before I wound up with A Circle is a Balloon and Compass Both, a book of short stories, um, which I love so much. That book still to me is, uh, maybe it was, it's the way like the first record you find by a band maybe is your favorite record always. I just, I, so much great stuff in there. It, um, is that the book that has the the piece from when you were a teenager?
2: That is in the introduction, I think of, okay. I've used it more than once, the platform piece? Yes. Yeah, I think that's in there in the in the introduction. It's from elementary school. And then I yeah. sort of repurposed it over the years.
1: Not even a teenager. Okay, so um, of course I described how much I loved that book and then misrepresented. <laughs> Thanks, well, that piece, that piece is funny
2: because- so we, we were taught, so that my, there's a story attached to it a little bit, which is that I always was a kid who read and I was a math kid up until a certain age. I was like, I was very good at math and I was pushed into it because it was quantitative and it, I don't know what people, again, the, the rewards that you get, where people say, oh, you got them all right. Congratulations. That happens in math a lot. Whereas in English, a teacher might say not sure what you are trying to say here about to kill a mockingbird you know and also there should be no comma here and then you just get frustrated at that age because you're i've seen this with my kids their big ideas aren't yet controllable so they they, you can feel um burned by that process a little bit whereas math is just it's, it's an easy dopamine drip you get it right you get it right you get it wrong that's bad you get it right and i remember writing these kinds of I don't know what they were, I guess they're fables. And one of them is this platform story where there's a guy who's on a platform and he has everything that he wants. Uh, I've elaborated over the years because I've, I've added in things like a phone to call a companion. But when I was a kid, it was just like, you had everything you want. You have the couch, you have the TV, you have the radio, everything on your platform. But you look across and you see a platform that's higher. And so you begin to envy that other platform. And you think a lot about whether you can make the jump to it and you deliberate and you think I, this, I'm leaving my home, but I have ambition and I have um, a now a sense of privation that I'm being denied things. And so I'm going to make that jump and you measure it in your mind and one and you exercise a lot and you do squats or whatever you need. I don't know the muscles that help people jump. Let's assume it's squats. And then one day you, you wake up and you decide you're going to do it. You run and you jump to the other platform. And the second you hit the other platform, it starts to sink. And the one you were on starts to rise until you're in the exact same position you were before. And when I wrote this, when I was a kid, I thought, you know, I'm sure obviously the same thing is true. If you write a song, you paint a painting, you do a sculpture. There's something about the form of what you've written, the idea and the way it's expressed that that operates correctly. And you know that you've achieved something. What you've achieved, who knows, not for me to say but you know that you made something that is something. So I liked that and that became, I like that feeling, whatever that writing something like that returns to you, I liked. And so I think that's the thing I chase a lot. That, not, the, not the platform literally, but that feeling of writing a, I don't know, it's like making a, a, a clockwork more than it is writing a, a novel. In the end, I don't know if I care so much about uh, humans. <laughs> No, I I do. I can't find humans. (laughs) They're the worst. They're (laughs) who invented this shit. It's a yeah. I mean, the the the, I did this book with Questlove called Creative Quest, and there's a thing in there that's really interesting. Where that's a it's a it plays off of a quote by David Byrne, where he says when he's talking to kids, he tells them they have they should decide what they're not before they decide what they are, which I think is really interesting, and I think it's true. You can otherwise feel you have talent, and you can just spiral and think, maybe I should paint, maybe I should do this, maybe I should be a choreographer. As soon as you can eliminate the things that you know you're bad at, you're much closer. And I really am interested in this as a reader of writers, the great writers who are terrible at scenery. Or you read an entire novel and you think, I know nothing about what the faces of any of those people look like. That, That great author never told me what their faces looked like. And you know what? I don't care. That's fine. They, they have face blindness or they just don't care. So that's really interesting. And, I, and I, I've thought a lot about that over the years as talent refines and bounces around and moves to different places. You have to just know the things you're not good at. There's great plotters. There's great describers. There's great uh, trick box creators. Are there things in songwriting that you, like, I don't know if you take, As you started to study other songwriters, you know, when you're in that parody phase, I think we both, we both have something in common, which is that, again, I don't know about, I said there were no writing prodigies, but even with that said, both of us got started early and were rewarded pretty early. In that phase, when you're looking at a lot of other artists, is that part of it that you think, geez, I really like this person's work and yet they're shitty at rhyming or they don't build a good structure or they don't know what things look like? Or are
1: you not that analytical when you take on someone else's body of work? You no, know, it's funny when I was young like that. I think the things that bothered me were more um, like it always bothered me how um, who's the Silver Bullet Band, Bob Seeger. Like it, w- it was more, it was more about delivery, presentation, the kind of authorial voice of a musician when they get like. <laughs> Like, earnestness is what bothered me, which is ironic because um, I was earnest in like a really easy to beat up, you know, kind of overly sensitive kid way. The kind of earnestness that bothered me was the like, I'm a gruff old man earnestness. I've seen it all kind of that. I was just like, oh my God, get out of my car stereo, old man. And and
2: you have such a good eye for, as a songwriter and a writer for detail. I I mean, I I think about this a lot because you can look at people that are kind of, um, I wouldn't say they're blurrier songwriters, but, but like if you compare a Neil Young to a Dylan, to a Tom Waits, to a, I don't know who, they all have very different ways of approaching imagery. And I guess if you get to a certain point of confidence, you're not imitating anyone else. Although, you know, I'm sure most of them at some point are imitating Dylan you know, at some point as young people, they pass through that even, even in Neil Young, but how do you, I guess the question that I always have, and this is in reading books and stories and listening to songs, um, how do you allow yourself to take the pressure off internally in certain parts of the process? In other words, you're describing a scene, you're describing a person, you're furnishing dialogue. Often when you write songs, they are they are short stories in a sense. I mean, I don't know if you think of them that way, but they're not abstract anthems. They, they have details and people and settings and descriptions for the most part. Um, do you, what does the editing process feel like? Are there times that you think, oh, I've said too much about what I think this woman in the song looks like. I have to pull it back. This is now taking over the song or it's overburdening the song.
1: It's funny, the thing that happens more and more is that I lose touch with the the writer in me that loves to build things out of details and let the listener do the work, and I, I wind up making proclamations in a way that the younger me would have just barfed at. Actually, the really young me was doing it all the time because, you know, like Roddy frame of Aztec camera would say, you know, the um, all the love and beauty in the spirit of, you know, love and beauty and et cetera, et cetera. But then I really fell in love with songs built on details in that were evocative rather than, uh, I don't know, uh, pedantic. And so. But as I get older, I find myself doing the love is kind of shit more, and it drives me crazy. And I'm like, well, what am I doing here? Is it because now I think I'm old and I know everything, or am I just lazy? So now, now a lot of my rewriting tends to be like, do the work. Do the work to build the feeling rather than say the feeling.
2: It's really interesting because that distillation, obviously, we both and many people other than us have been doing this long enough that you arrive. I don't know that you arrive at truths but you i find myself more and more impatient to say the thing i mean and a lot of it has to do with the loss of being in touch with that kind of um there's different kinds of playfulness but that 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 um testing your own imitative abilities or your own descriptive abilities and a lot of times it depends who you're writing for whether you're and and this every writer goes through uh Phases of this: you you start writing to impress parents or siblings or or yourself, and then often there's a romantic phase where you're trying to get a partner, and you want people to see all the things that are in you that you haven't been otherwise able to articulate. Then you arrive at a it's not really the top of the stairs; it's like the the half pace that you know when you're going upstairs and there's a mid platform and it turns goes up again. That that I feel like I'm often in that place. I'm not all the way up but I've reached a kind of plateau. And yeah, I mean, I mean, you said at the beginning, we would talk about how we do things and also why we do things, the things that we do. And that becomes more and more important and unclear. And then in some ways clear. Like what, what is the point? We're in a world now where there's, uh, let's say a nauseating amount of things. <laughs> Accessible uh, artwork. So I do think about that a lot as I'm going into something. Do I just want to be somebody who describes a place or a face well, or should I just say what I mean? You know, And, and uh, if I do, is it, is it the same thing anymore? Is it a story? Is it an essay? Is it a philosophical text? Um, yeah, I don't know. So do you think if, if the song takes a turn and it becomes a thing where you're just doing that young Roddy frame is it a different kind of work to you and you try to discard it and put back in detail or are there times that you think, Oh, I'll, I'll keep this in full and this will become a new thing that I do or a different thing that I do.
1: It's sweet to hear the way you describe it because it's sort of what I keep coming back to is that it's not dishonest. Like I don't, I feel like sometimes the uh, beating around the bush and, and trying to um, walk my wits and show everybody how clever I can be in describing what love is, is, is um, less authentic than just saying love is. Didn't like, like, I know that you, you know, the Russian writers pretty well, certainly better than I do. Don't the Russians tend to be like, you know, he was a sad man who lived a lonely life and, you know, he, he missed his son. Like they'll just say things. I mean, I think there's a lot in, you know, the novel,
2: If you look at how it comes together and it's you know over the last i don't know four or five hundred years there's phases where yeah i mean you what passes for setting up a scene and describing a character is so and then extracting from that character or from that scene uh i wouldn't say truth but something that can be maybe digested or metabolized as truth it's so different from place to place from time to time from person in this year to person in next year they I I was last year I I reread Anna Karenina and there's just you know there's scenes I I always think that like I think well which writer am am I going to go back to when I feel that I'm lagging in this department or I don't understand how to do this anymore that's a great benefit of having well it's a great benefit of having um age of having books and then, I guess, e-texts of things that are out of copyright, because you can consult these things piecemeal. And it's so strange. It, what I find, and I go back to the, cl- the literature classes that I took in college and grad school, and, and many were good, but they're teaching you, they don't have any sense of the chaos or the wonder that's in most of these books where they're so strange. <laughs> you know, they, they all want to have a a takeaway. It's like, I think even the, not the best teachers, but a lot of teachers, there's still an exit through the gift shop mentality where they want you to come out of the class, knowing something, you know, you're paying them and you're spending your time and they want you to understand something about this writer and this time. And the truth is that most art work of this kind is so odd. It's so idiosyncratic. It doesn't follow the rules that people say it does. And, And I, you know, we all try to define what art is. And for a little while I was thinking, that it's what shouldn't work, but does that. That's, that's kind of my definition. Cause if it's something that should work, all of us can kind of do that. I don't know what the equivalent for you would be like a jingle, you know, or a theme song that the rules are fairly simple. You can do it. You know how to get the right kind of melody, the right kind of rhyme that for me, it's always the thing that shouldn't work, making a choice as I'm making it that I think, Oh no, this is disastrous. And then you, step back from it a little and you think, oh, no, not only is that not disastrous, but that's better than the jingle version of this. And so, yeah, I mean, I, the short answer is I play around with that a lot, just having a character say what they believe is the case. They can look foolish. Maybe a reader doesn't buy it. But yeah, I mean, I I, I try to think about what I grew up on. The The sort of, I don't know, the first phase is like, On the one hand, novels that were by that point a decade or so old, although the writers were still writing, but the Updikes and the Roths and the Stanley Elkins and the Vance Borgailies. And then on the other hand, the Raymond Carver type short stories and that's remained the tension in a lot of the work, but those are clearly not the only two ways to do it. Um, So short answer is yes, you're right. And I don't know.
1: It's so funny. Just then when you said it's the thing that shouldn't work, but does that's so thrilling to me, because and then you have a habit of doing this in my experience with you is is saying something in a way where the thing that I've always kind of felt suddenly feels explicable and and true. And I love that. that's true. I, I've got a new song that I was just in working on, and the way I was doing it was the way anyone could do it, And it was bothering me. It was really feel and and so it was feeling I was feeling stupid doing this song. And um, I went in the next day and I said, okay, we're going to redo the verses. And we did them in a way that was the way that nobody would do it. And that felt fun. Finally, I was like, okay, this, this, that's right. Because otherwise, what am I, I mean, anybody could, like, there's a guy 30 years younger than me and, you know, who could do this a hundred times better because it's just, you know, walking through the motions of a thing. I feel like it's when you,
2: when you buy a picture frame and there's that family that's always in it when you buy it, <laughs> That if the same thing, the way that I think of this for, for making things is that version, but for a mirror, that if you bought a mirror and there was a guy already in it, that that's what you want to avoid. And, and I think a lot of the training it's, it's, I'm sort of interested in this as I get older, because the, there's a slower pace just by virtue of being slower and being old. Like I, the energy, I don't know if I have less, but it's, it, it's parsed out differently parceled out differently over the course of the day. And I wrote George Clinton's memoir with him. And one of the things that he said about funk music that I always thought was really interesting is he said, anybody can do it fast. And his invention for Funkadelic, because he was, you know, they were dropping acid and they were dealing with what was at the time proto heavy metal and trying to work all this in in Detroit in the late 60s, early 70s coming out of doo coming out of motown and trying to create this new thing he said the trick is, was if you could be funky slow and as i get older i think a lot about that because there are these songs where the song intentionally slows down but it keeps the same riff as it ends or as it uh, outros so often it seems like it'll never end there's a battle song like this from live at lowland there's the sly stones sly the family stone sex machine where the the trick of the song is that it slows down as it goes but it's the same i don't know theme technique riff the same shape and but you see more of it because it's going slower so you understand it better and it has to work you can't cover it up with speed so that informs a lot of how i think of these things as i get older i don't know what it what the equivalent is in the actual writing, because unlike you, I don't, I don't have, I'm not making a time work. I can suggest, time. I mean, I can, I can do things in a work that cues people how fast or how slow to go, but I'm not really in control of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as a young person, I would just try to cram as much in as possible all the time because you have no concept of why not to do that.
1: Um, you Don't seem like somebody to me that has doubted yourself very much, but I hear you talk about um, the minor identity crises that you've encountered, you know, and just even in the time that I've known you, um, you know, transitioning from New Yorker editor to full-time writer to like uh, mainly collaborator now, like it's hilarious to me that I I think the first rock memoir you co-wrote was with Gene Simmons. That's so it's so funny to me. Like, I just I wonder, as you transition, you know, from from Ben Greenman to Ben Greenman, like, um, how do you how do you handle the sort of inherent um, inner turmoil? You know, how do you handle the sort of self-generated obstacles that you uh, run into? Maybe you're telling yourself you're not good enough. Maybe you're telling yourself that you're too good and the world doesn't appreciate you. Maybe, you know, Maybe sometimes people talk about um, success, guilt, or imposter syndrome. I just, I wonder when you encounter these these self-generated obstacles, how do you handle them, get through them?
2: A lot is, or has become my understanding of and my distaste for uh markets and this i think is something that every all of us have to contend with if we have any level of success and i mean any i mean a book gets published you know that that that's uh sometimes it can seem like in the tri-state area that 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 happens to everyone but the truth is you get there and that's a pretty high part of the mountain that you have reached then you have to think, well, do I keep going higher? From here, it looks sheathed than ice. So, okay, I'll try. I mean, but, you know, I don't know at what rate or with what expectations to try, because I also see that down there, there's a bunch of crumpled bodies. And those people went up the part that sheathed than ice without a sense that they might already have gotten, they Did go back and say, you got to the top. Who cares? People don't know. They, and so that notion of the top is an artificial one. And particularly when you get into things like sales or competition, all those things that get into everybody's head, because you know people, I know people who I read their work. I didn't quite get it. I liked it, but I thought, oh, well, that's great. They're doing their thing. I'm doing mine. And then they just go zooming, you know, all of a sudden you look on the cover of like Creative Person Monthly and they're on the cover. Then I know other people whose work I really loved and I was sure they were going to be on the cover of Creative People Monthly. And they just stop. They don't, they can't get purchased. They can't get traction. They, they're doing something else. And and sometimes they seem miserable and sometimes they seem happy. Sometimes they seem relieved that they didn't have to, to whichever metaphor I now want, the mountain or the magazine. But they, they didn't like that rat race. So that you, you figure out that for yourself. Now, for me, the thing I was happiest doing from very early on was doing a short work that contained an idea it was the closest thing in writing to kind of conceptual art and then releasing it and letting people find it have fun with it be surprised by it as I say I didn't really care I didn't want anyone to say it never mattered to me to say well this guy is the definitive chronicler of 1970s southern California I just you know whatever whatever the, that was that didn't matter And when I think about those those really fundamental artworks that I did when I was a kid, even before I was writing in some cases, those are like, like the thing for me that I think, I was thinking about this, you and I were training, I've done a lot of these fake graphs where I make these weird infographics. And I was thinking about where that started. And so when I was in graduate school at Northwestern in Chicago, before I started, I'd published some short fiction. I had an early run, and I, I want to get back to talking about parody in the second in newspapers, but I had an early run of success. People said, Oh, that kid's a really good writer. He's a really interesting writer. So I was in graduate school for a PhD that I didn't finish. And they, I was in the, the cafeteria and there were vending machines. And one of them was those vending machines where they have lots of weird items that you don't think would be in vending machines, like finished sandwiches. And like, I don't know what, and there's different prices on each row. So there's a 350 row and a 250 row and then they you can send them around with buttons so i bought one of the 250 sandwiches i opened it up i put a ten dollar bill in to the little compartment closed it and sent it back around and then i just sat there and i watched And over the course of the afternoon more than a few people came saw did not buy it they were i guess it's what would pass for like an idiot's psychology experiment but they were afraid of it it seemed it was a disruption. It was it was before the Matrix, but it was like a glitch. They they could not get in their heads why there was a ten dollar bill in the two fifty uh, little compartment. Eventually, somebody bought it. And I didn't interact with them or anything. I just sort of registered it. When I was in college, the couple weeks after I got there, I said to my roommate, uh, "Let's go. I have to put some posters up for these art shows." And he's like, "Okay, whatever. I don't know." I don't have a job yet, but whatever. And we went out and I started putting these posters on shows like this artist at this gallery. And then there's a little thumbnail of the work. And at some point he said, Oh, I don't know that gallery. And I said, Oh yeah, none of these are real. I just, you know, like, I just made up some artists and some names of shows and I drew some shit or did some Xerox art because I thought I could make it plausible on that tiny form on the on the flyer. And then I thought, okay, now I don't care. If someone goes to a sh- this address that I've listed, maybe there's a record store there or a gas station. I'm not hurting anyone. I mean, I'm not sending people. It's not like I put an address where they would walk and walk and walk and, you know, here be monsters and they fall into the ocean. It's just, they just go to a place and it does it's not there and they blame this flyer. So those things and the platform story are these kind of DNA moments where I think whatever I do that has to be part of it. So as I get older and as I now that the collaborations are very different collaborations are the journalist part of me where I can use the writing skill, but mostly my job is to, well, the first job is to find someone I respect as an artist and then listen to them for a year. And that's a whole different part of the brain. Very relaxing, very rewarding. Um, it's not exactly a friendship because there's work to be done, but it's a kind of bond. It's a collaborative bond. And so I really like that. But it's very different from the thing I really want to do, which is, you know, to go and nail a thing up to a tree for
1: a fake show or put a $10 bill in the vending machine. Well, the nice thing is that they did not make you stop doing other things as well. I mean, the, the, right. and, and it's, it's, I mean, like I, like I mentioned in the beginning, the, um, the work the amount of work you've done is staggering and and you just continue to do all these different things it's does it ever feel like it's did, did, how do you keep it all together um, it seems like a lot
2: i probably don't or or i mean i have so you say what you know as the fiction has receded somewhat well it's just changed i probably have 5 to 8 Finished works—I wouldn't say finished because an editor would need to go through them—but finished works of book-length fiction, either collections of stories or novels. Part of it, again, and this is a market issue, it's hard to flood the market. I mean, there have been times when I've had agents or editors who say, "Well, there's just too much work. You can't—you have a an audience of whatever size, and you're cannibalizing it, your own audience, or that you know you're going to burn people out on you. You can't." give people, unless you're a genre writer, in which case you can and you should, you can't give people a literary book and then X amount of time later give them another one because there's no time for that first one to be absorbed by minds, by publications, by that thing. I never liked that and I never understood it, but I came to see that it was true. And then the fact that I didn't like it just meant that I didn't understand something that was true. And that that's not a good feeling. And so the... I, yeah, there are lots of moments, minor moments, lots of despair or a feeling, when will I plug back in? Now, what has offset that is all this dumb technology like this and all the technology that we suffer from. Social media, I started on Twitter years ago, two or three years ago, publishing hundreds and at this point it's thousands of sort of paragraph long short stories I started thinking what is that form because I've been told since I was 30 that oh well attention spans have changed so drastically and so people are going to love reading the short form that's going to come back and and that's going to really win you know that the, the 300 word if you can make a piece of written artwork in 300 words that you will at some point enjoy victory it's not true I mean it hasn't been true yet I don't know why people's attention spans have suffered and they've become more scattered and more in many places at once or in no place at all but I started doing that and each of those is sort of a nice shot across the bow of whatever ship I think is coming to you know pirate fight with my ship. It's, it's, it, it holds it, that, that fear of the thing coming, it holds it back a little bit. Uh, that's how I solved it for now. I don't know the answer. I mean, some of those things are collectible. I've had cases where I did a bunch about Trump after, well, before the election and then after, and those were collected in a book. A guy found me and said, I'd love to do these as a book. And that was fun. And it did work as a book. I don't know if these other ones do. The moments of doubt are more I I don't, I guess one of the ways I survive it is I don't think of it as my doubt. I think of it as this real serious shift, which I think is real, a legitimate shift in how things are distributed, experienced, processed, collected, paid for, owned. Um, Am I doing anything different now, putting a short story on Twitter, a, a tiny little short story where it's seen by tens of thousands of people potentially, versus 20 years ago, I could write a whole collection of short stories, publish it, and it might be seen by exactly that number of people or fewer. And so what have I changed? It's true. The artifact, I don't have that physical artifact or I can't go in a bookstore and, you know, point it out to someone I'm thinking of dating or whatever. I don't know, I don't know what happened 20 years ago, but it's right. How is it different? And, And again, as a, as a songwriter, I'm sure every, you know, music professional songwriting professional grapples with a much more drastic version of that where, All of the channels have changed. The channels of distribution and consumption have changed. And so the only thing you care about, which is, is my, they say, if you you reach one person, that's enough. And that's, you know, it's a a, a bromide. It's not really true, but it is all I can think. It's probably different when you're playing to a live audience and you see multiple people. For me, when I release a work, my mental process is imagining it landing in one mind. And they were like sitting in the cafeteria and watching one person come up to the vending machine. That's the charge for me. And that's what I keep when I write work. And I know that happens if I publish something on social media. So what would the function be of a book except for posterity? And then the sad truth is that digital things are probably gonna outlast physical things. I mean, re- really, when you think about server redundancy and all of that, you know, the thing I tweet, is almost certainly going to live longer than a book I publish. I fear, I believe. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, th- that's how I've gotten to it. Yeah, there's a lot of moments of frustration. Like, what it, should I, should this book be out? Should I fight hard to put it out? But I don't know what that looks like anymore. I mean, I assume the same has happened for albums to some degree. You know, is that form real anymore? Is it, is it fun to walk into? cutlers in new haven where i bought every record that came out for years and scanned the shells. is that fun anymore i don't
1: it doesn't seem like it would be but i don't know funny when 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 we were all studying the medium is the message and the McLuhan and but now i don't even know what is i don't understand the medium what is even the medium how how is how is this getting delivered
2: i don't know i mean i mean if you and I know you did this. I mean, I mean, first of all, we have the internet and we have digital distribution. Then we have in the last year and a half, something else. We have pandemic where the whole lifeline for people like you, people like me were already shifting away from this. And I remember years where I would tell publishers, don't send me on a book tour. What are you crazy? I mean, you're going to, and think about it from just a purely practical point of view. You're going to buy my plane ticket to my hotel, my drivers. I'm going to be in a bookstore. I'm going to sell X number of copies of a book. You're not going to break even. I mean, you might, but probably you're not. I know what you're saying, which is that you want me to have relationships with bookstores, but I could, there's other ways for me to do that. I mean, you know, I wasn't, for the most part, playing to audiences in the same way. But you have this thing where, where you are, and the pandemic ends that. And very quickly, you and people like you scramble to capitalize on inventions or new platforms or and and you were very good at this and very quick at it other people were slower at it but did that feel like winning or did that feel like caving or did that feel like just the normal adaptation that we all have to do all the time anyway now
1: because the world has changed so quickly it just felt like survival it just felt like oh my god what am i gonna do and it still does i mean i i you know i it doesn't feel great, but you know, does it ever feel great doing something that's terrifying and and is most likely going to fail? And somehow, you and I have made careers and raised kids and own homes, um, but it's always a little terrifying. But but what would the alternative be? Having a job, job, and being uh, what are those people happy? Are they content? Are they not terrified? Uh, I no, I mean, I don't.
2: I think the human condition is is not to be content, and then you can sort of. Uh, bleed it off in, in different ways. And and I think, again, it's like that, that David Byrne thing of decide what you're not before you decide what you are. I, I think more about, this happened a lot during pandemic where I'd have a moment and I'd be sitting around and I'd be very briefly happy. I'd write a sentence that was cool and I'd stand up and walk away from the computer. And I thought I would think, oh yeah, that's I'm happy. That's what that is. But they're so rare. It's like, it's like uh, I'm not a birder. Um, I, don't, it's not, I don't usually explain that I'm not one, but I'm not a birder, but let's say I, I was a birder. I'm sure those people have this experience where they hear a bird song and they think, oh shit, that's the rare whatever. You know, the, the pink orange warbler face. I don't know anything about birds at all, clearly. <laughs> um, though I have had funny fights in fiction with people about, I had a bird once that was singing in a story while it was flying. And an editor who fought me and said, "Birds don't sing when they fly," and I said, "Uh, yeah, they do. I hear them all the time." <laughs> that, was, that was funny. But, but that that whatever it is, there's a fancy word, cackoraphobia. Uh, uh, it's it's extreme fear of failure. So, I think all of us are um, demented or damaged and that we can't have that. I mean. We all have fear of failure to some degree, but it's, it usually is after the, it's not paralyzing. It's after the fact. And that's how I want to keep it. Everybody is fear of failure. I, you know, work is done. It's in the publisher's hands, it starts to come out. And then I think, oh no, this isn't going to land, right? This is going to take me in the wrong direction. And that's a terrible feeling. It never prevents me from doing it again. It's like, I don't know, maybe it's like the male version of childbirth where you are able to set aside the pain and the very fundamental shifts in your being and the, this feeling of loss of control of your, I don't know if people feel this, but some people say they have of your being. And then you do it again, you know, and, and you produce something again. And, and I can't do that as far as I know. And this is the closest I can imagine where all the pain is then shelved. Um, it is survival. I think also as I get older, I feel more like I'm, this is not in the grandiose spiritual way, but that I'm sort of the vessel. I want the work to live. I know I'm not going to live forever, but the and I assume the work won't, but it might, or it might be rediscovered. Most of the books that I read and that I love were not bestsellers in their day. Saw more, but most weren't. Most of the works that I love were rediscovered at some point. They lay dormant in a library a bookshelf someone's mind and then somebody picks it back up and brings it back into the world and and sometimes it's because they were ahead of their time or well, i don't know what that really means but they were out of step with the time when they existed and then they come into step so yeah i mean you can say these are all fantasies of sort of you know midlist fantasies but but i do feel more and more as i get older that it's not about me um and that helps. That helps with things like the market and the product. I just want to make things that have little, that detonate little charges in people's heads. And I, I don't care if they trace it back to me increasingly.
1: I should have warned you about this beforehand, um, but um, we now stop down for sponsors before I get to the final question where I'll ask you to distill some wisdom. Um, but uh, before we get there, the producers will now inject a few seconds i guess of someone uh shilling for something in order to pay for the producers which they're doing a great job thank you producers and and we're back so <laughs> that was great that that moment of product uh, uh interposing a product was it, it might be the best part i think thanks they they used to do it and this is not on them this is on me they used to just put it in w- without me like putting a spot and it would sometimes um, at least now we know it's happening. You and I, um, I, by the way, I love this so much. And uh, I'm so excited for people to hear. Cause I, I mean, I um, I've gotten to be your friend now for over a decade, well over a decade, I think. And, and I, one of my favorite things is just talking to you, um, going over these things with you and to be able to share this with other people, I feel like is a real gift that, that I'm able to give to them. Um, I wonder if, and this is a question that has real life sort of value for you and I these days, because you and I both have teenagers, which is terrifying. But I wonder if you were to run into a version of yourself, a 21 year old version of yourself in today's world. Yeah. Um, What, what advice do you think you might give yourself? Jesus. Um, I I think that I would,
2: I think I would tell myself to listen a little differently to older people, but but like like the older version of myself talking to the younger version of myself, but it wouldn't work. And I think I always had a lot of stubbornness when it came to mentors. And this gets back to the idea of parody, that, that I think I learned reading things, listening to things, watching things that I liked, and then trying to duplicate them, and then doing so very strangely. And then when the very strange thing emerged, thinking, oh, I tried to copy that thing and failed in a weird way. And so then I guess I have something that's my own. But they were always relationships with static art, not static artworks, but artworks outside of the humans, they were already completed. And I didn't really, I had friends who were mentored by people, and often it was very valuable for them. And I was bad at that. I didn't like it. I, I resented it. I didn't like listening to people um, in that way, people who would say, oh, why don't you, it's interesting. And I, and I remember, I don't know if, if you have this, but I remember every single thing that passes for a slight or a, you know, I would write a paper and somebody, I read this one professor who said, you're over-relying on Latin roots in your vocabulary. And I furious, I mean, he might have been right. I don't care. I, I you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I, who knows? But I, it's like, I wasn't striking at his core. So I thought, well, what are you doing? Who? This is a hierarchy issue. I thought, I don't really get why we're all humans. And yet these hierarchies spring up where one person is over another person or in charge of another person. That always seems strange to me. When I was a boss, it seemed strange to me. I did it because I had a responsibility to do it, but it's very odd. Why? Because you're sitting in the desk and I'm in the chair on the other side of the desk. Are you suddenly in charge of me? That, that's crazy. And so at the same time, I think because of that, I passed on a lot of advice that would have been good for me. It, it is paradoxical, like most things that I think, because I would advise my younger self that as I advise my children that, and they don't listen. They're not interested in that model just like I wasn't. And they're, gonna, they're taking it all in, but, but along a route that I can't and they can't yet see. So, but then I don't know. I think if I took that advice, maybe the art path is different. I mean, we, I, I wanted to ask you about this too, because that idea of parody and mentorship, you must start both imitating and then sort of positive opposite imitating things where you, you know you love music, you know you love songwriting and you can spot the points in it that are doing things that you wanna do and then the ones that are doing things you don't wanna do. And then you try. Is there formal
1: mentorship? You, you hear about it. Did it happen for you or not really? i mean i I was always surrounded by um older people whom I admired to uh, admired and looked up to and leaned on um, Murray the bass player in the old ninety sevens being sort of first and foremost and then as I've gotten older, I've had a number of younger artists, many of whom are no longer y- young which is um which has been sweet and and i in fact, today a formal mentorship came through from um, the recording, uh, the Grammy people, which I'm now a member of that, and they they had sent me an email a couple of weeks ago saying, "Would you like to be a mentor?" And I ignored it, and then they sent a follow up email, and I was like, "Oh my god, okay, I've got to actually do this." And so I today received a formal mentee who is studying music industry things, and also aspiring, I guess, to be a songwriter. So I am about to be a formal mentor, which is very strange, but all I, all I can imagine, and this is like you, the advice that you give your sons, uh, or if you were to be mentoring someone, you know, and, and how they, you can't even imagine them taking it. The only thing I feel like I can do for them is to um, point out things that I think I did terribly wrong in the hopes that maybe some of that might be useful to them, But also just say, look here. I'll introduce you to whoever I know. You know, if there's right. I
2: think I think that's very true. I mean that that networking portion, and that's that's a bad flat word for it. It's really relationship development and and nurturing. I think, yeah. I mean, I I guess the part that that still strikes me as strange is that the relationship is with the work. So so to me, it doesn't matter if that person's been dead for two hundred years. If it's somebody I read as a kid and was taken by like a. I don't know a Beckett or a Stanley Elkin or a Maxine Hong Kingston, or if it's a short story I read today by someone who's nineteen, they're mentoring me. If I, if I'm productively inspired by, or or even better, productively stealing from someone, they're my mentor, and so they can be eleven years old. I mean, I, my my niece who's seven. If they if I go over there and she says something and the phrase sticks in my head, I feel that she's mentored me. So yeah I mean, no, I think you're absolutely right the The practical navigation it, it, that's the question i mean, I don't know that I would have anything to offer, partly because the world's so different when i have get, like as a journalist i've worked as a i have worked off and on as a journalist from a professional for most of my life. sometimes I feel like the advice has been don't do it because it's changed so drastically and and the rewards that I felt and the size of the industry when I came in and you know the early nineties has just, it's unrecognizable now. It doesn't now, if you're driven to do it and you want to analyze things in print for whatever passes for money and and get an audience, of course, do it, do a good job. And I can offer a couple of hints, but I don't know. They say 40% of the jobs that we know will be gone by the time our kids graduate. That's the stat, the frightening stat they quote. So they say, don't give advice that's too specific because you don't know what you're talking about. You know, the, the, technician for this kind of thing that you can't even imagine is going to be the biggest job in 10 years or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that stubbornness is what makes us and people like us. It's what, what, what propels us. It's often our Waterloo in, in small and large ways. And that's fine. I guess that's that's the bargain
1: that we agree to like, or or maybe can't not agree to. I don't know. There's a Bowie quote from a Rolling Stone interview years ago that I think about all the time. I have probably cited it during these wheels off interviews a dozen times, but they were asking him about the uh, collapse of the um, recorded music industry. And he said, well, the good thing about it is that when the money's all gone, the only people left will be the people who have no choice, but to do this. That's sort of how I, I, I see it going that way. And that's how you feel.
2: I mean, you, so, so you, I wanted to ask you this. I don't know if this has come up before. I I don't remember coming up before, but A, did you have other jobs? And B, let's just say by court order, you couldn't do this,
1: what you do. What would the alternative be? I would have had to go back and, and devote time or I guess start now devoting time to learning how to do the things. But I always I had a pretty clear two pronged path when I was um, going off to Sarah Lawrence for my brief experience at college where it was going to be writing um, or music. And and um, I always figured I could go back and do writing as an older person, you know, citing Vonnegut and others who weren't published until they were in their 40s and um but it's hard now because i don't see the hours i've spent as being uh directly transferable so there's a such a learning curve that now as a you know middle-aged man it's oh it's daunting and and then yeah i look at someone like you to whom writing is like breathing it, you make it look so easy and i just think how could i ever even come close but they first of all i mean
2: you have you have obviously i mean i don't know if you spend your podcasts holding up all of your, your works, but you have expanded. You, you've written other things that are not, strictly speaking, songs, obviously, journalism and been and, and anthologized and, and poetry. And, you know, children song. I mean, I guess, I guess they're song adjacent in, in a sense, in, in your mind. The thing I think is really interesting. And, and, oh, the other thing I would say to my younger self is I would say, be more open to collaboration. That was part of the stubbornness too. Some of the most rewarding or, or, expanding i don't see them at the time have been the things when i let a piece of my work go i mean you and i have written songs together but in a weird way i I will write a bunch of lyrics send them to you you will make them better and then they come out as a song and i think oh good i co-wrote a song that's not really what happened and i wrote a song in the same way with swamp dog the funk star i wrote a novel called please step back about a sly stone like Sly Stone, Marvin Gaye, Curtis Mayfield, but mostly Sly Stone, like star in the 70s. And I wrote lyrics for all the songs in the book because he was singing and I would block quote out pieces of lyrics. And I wrote Swamp Dog and I said I had written a review of an album of his for The New Yorker. And somehow he wrote me and said, I really like that review. That was that was great. That was a really sensitive understanding of what I'm trying to do here. And I wrote back and said, I'm a huge fan. And then I, we became email friends and I wrote him after a while. And I said, listen, I have this novel and I have these funk songs in it that I imagine is a funk guy from the early seventies, like Sly Stone or Chris Mayfield or you, would you ever think of writing a, the theme song with me? I'll send you the lyrics and you'll make the song. And he replied and his reply was like a black motherfucker. And so he, he, I sent him the lyrics and he made the song and it was a very strange, but so rewarding. He would send me sort of roughs and say, what do you think of this? Who am I? I don't know. I'd say, and then I have to find a way to say the thing I think without just being an idiot. Like, but they were idiot re- things like, a, could it be a little slower? I don't <laughs> Like I imagine this part in my head, because I have this idea of it to be a little tiny bit slower. And he was great. And he took everything that I, through and he said yeah yeah i I get what you mean i get it you want this to grind out more this guitar should sound different and it what i like the most about it and the same is true in, in writing with you is that the vocabulary that i always want for artwork that i love gets furnished that like i don't know how to talk i'm not a a scholar of the visual arts or film or songwriting i know a lot i've i've consumed a lot and i have my own ways of talking about it but I really like expertise in any form. I mean, I like it if I take my car in to get fixed. And so I like the idea that uh, when we went to Sanibel, you and I went to a writer's retreat and you taught a songwriting course. And it was great because I heard feedback from people at the event and you and I talked about it on the the plane on the way back. I just love that idea that there's the skill, like you say, you, you, what you can teach is maybe limited. I mean, you're not providing people with inspiration, you're giving guidance, but there is a vocabulary around it in a shorthand in a way of avoiding obvious mistakes. And, and I love that idea of uh, Dracula like biting the neck of people's expertise and just acquiring it, you know? And, and those kinds of shortcuts are a perk of doing work for a long time because you meet people who are at the same, the equivalent level in their, specialty and they've thought about this their whole life too and they say oh no you're sculpting a person start at the foot or I don't know what they say but and then you think oh oh." it never occurred to me but a person who's done this their whole life just gave me this incredible at the very least a metaphor for what I'm doing so do you feel like you weren't open to that when you were younger it took you a while to come around to it I wasn't open to it and I remember this guy I, I don't remember his name and even if I did I wouldn't say but he was an older painter and so when I was a kid, Miami Herald, uh, when I grew, I grew up in Miami and the Miami Herald had this Sunday magazine called Tropic. And Tropic ran these parody contests every once in a while. So when I was in, I think, 11th grade, 10th or 11th grade, they did one which was a literary parody. And Miami had this metro rail at the time, the, the Miami above ground subway system, elevated train, and it was unreliable. So I did a Beckett parody called Waiting Here to Go, of these two people waiting for the metro rail. Turned it, wrote it. It was just like a little play. Turned it in and it won the contest. And they, you know, they were surprised that I was young and they wrote about that. Two years later, they, so they said, uh, the joke was that they called and a woman answered and they said, is your husband home? He won this contest. And my mom said, it's my son, Ben's my son. So they made fun of me for being young. Two years later, when I was a freshman in college, they had this contest of parody all the different parts of the Sunday magazine create a parody of the cover of the editor's letter of the just a moment which was this kind of a Times Lives feature the feature story the well feature and so i wrote a bunch of parodies sent them in they blind judged them all and i won all the categories i i so then they they wrote this again and they called me and they said and the the editor has become a lifelong friend and he will frequently write at me at twitter and say you asshole i mean he's, he's constantly keeping me down in a funny way because he remembers me just as this kind of weird, you, you know, kid trying all these parodies. And so I don't know that I had a, I mean, you, it seems like as a teenager you had a measure of fame locally because you're going out and playing and you go to clubs and you're signed and you have a, what's the, is it, what's the label? Dark horse. What, what's the, um. the, your original album label, oh, the Carpidium Carpedium. Okay. So, so I don't, I didn't have that. I wasn't sort of publishing or releasing, but, but people knew. So, so occasionally older artists in whatever form would, would find me somehow. I came back to Miami after college and I was working for a newspaper there, a weekly newspaper, Miami New Times So I'd meet people and they, would Oh, Oh, you're so everyone's while Oh, you're that kid. Oh, I know it's, the, you know, the daily paper. And I was always, I have to say, probably immaturely creeped out. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know their motive. Not that I thought it was sexual or anything, but I just didn't know their motive. It seemed, it. Why would they want to spend time with me? Weren't they like interesting people? And then when you're young, there's a very great division between authorized real world work and then local stuff. At least there was for me. So I'd go to the bookstore and Books and Books, this great bookstore in Miami. If if James Baldwin came to the bookstore, well, that mattered. I'd want to go meet him and shake his hand and have him sign a book for me. Or Andy Warhol came to our local art museum, that mattered. I was really little for that. And I made a giant soup can out of a poster board and he signed it. And it's since been lost, which I'm furious about Mm. because I'm sure it's worth a ton. But uh... So those people mattered and I wanted to meet them. And I felt like I would get some osmosis inspiration. I don't know if it was snobbery or just shyness in proximity, but if I got in the room with someone who was 10 years older than me and doing something, It was interesting that I might've admired. I I don't know. I just wasn't comfortable. I I wasn't, I didn't have the fellowship, you know, musicians are like in the same space as each other. I I was never in the same space. I was just in my house writing. So no, I, I didn't do it. I wasn't good at it. If I made anybody feel bad, I mean, they're older than me, so they're probably dead. But if I made anybody feel bad, I apologize to them years later. That wasn't my intention. I just wasn't ready for that kind of, uh, legitimate exchange of ideas and, and thoughts. I, I I just want to run back to my house and like lock myself in my room and do some more
1: writing. I think that's great advice, though, and it's something that hasn't come up really in in any of these uh, wheels off interviews. Being open to mentorship, and I I think it is a real problem. Um, probably now even more than you know when you and I were kids, is that there. Old people seem gross. Old people seem like old and gross and stupid. And what do they know? And I, I, I benefited a great deal from, from being open to some mentorship. And um, yeah, I, that's, if, that's, if that's one takeaway that a listener can get from this, that's, that's great, Ben.
2: I love that. If you have your rebel brain on too, it's not that, that they're gross only. It's just that you think you're doing something new. And so what would they know, even if they're the best at their thing? And you forget that every older artist, every person who has gray in their beard, they were the rebel to, you know, like you see now, and this is the most true in rock and roll. Um, little Stephen and I talked about this when he was doing his book, rock and roll is a kind of uh, fountain of youth. There's a large number of 80 year olds who are still going rebels. They they, they never became establishment. They, Why would they? You know, their whole way of thinking. And that is sort of odd to me. And and I think that that's absolutely true. I think that they, yeah, I mean, for me, the shyness was more, it's it's a great question. Now I should also say I'm bad at it from the other side. I will meet young writers and they'll say, I'll send you work. And I really like them. And I really like their work. And I'm not always good. I have things to say to them. even. I'm not always good at doing it. I, I'll, they'll send me something and I'll say, oh, it's great to hear from you. I hope all is going well during the pandemic and I won't close the circle. And I apologize to them too. <laughs> I I have to be better at, at all ends. It's just that in that case, there's nothing emotional. I don't feel creeped out by them. I'm not resistant to them. It's more just set in my ways. I don't know if this happens with you. If you know a young person will send you a song and say, hey, do you have anything to say about this? And you actually do. You want to say to them like, no, you were right to keep the chorus the same throughout. You don't have to show off by varying it. And you just don't send that email. And they feel, I, I worry that they feel that I'm neglecting them or, or judging them, which I'm not. I'm just shitty at it.
1: <laughs> um, I love that this is your apology tour. <laughs> no, it's I've got a letter on framed on my wall from Elmore Leonard when I had corresponded briefly with him in 1993 or something. And um at some point, I had said, "I dream of someday writing as well. maybe I'll send you a manuscript or something and he wrote a really nice letter, and at the end, he said, "Oh by the way i don't um I don't read people's manuscripts just because it's work you know and and who's got time if i've if I've got time i'm going to be writing my own stuff and it's like you described earlier with the difficulty you even encounter just reading novels you know it's it's like I right. can see you want to work. You're built to work to create more bin Greenman stuff in
2: the world. And the work is often than the not working, as you know. You know, so even yeah. the not working, I, I wouldn't say I selfishly protect, but I understand it. I I, I once did a radio show with Elmer Leonard where he I, we were both on the same show and they said, uh, would you like to meet Mr. Leonard? And I said, Oh yes, of course. And whoever was organizing it set up a thing where I read uh, one, a piece of his work and he read a piece of mine and it was something very experimental and he did it. He was game. He was nice, but you could tell all along the way it was like a, what is this shit kind of attitude because it was nothing like what he was doing. And it crystallized for me. The pro, I mean, I was not hurt at all. I didn't think for a second that he would get it. It's not his thing. And he was ambushed anyway, but he was very nice about it. It was more in that case, studying a person like that to see I was actually gratified because it was what you just said. I could see that he was just sort of reflexively resentful of anything that took him away from being the person who made these great works. And yet at the same time, he was not an asshole. He was polite. He was nice. He he didn't say to me, you know, get out of my sight so I can get back and write my next great work. He did what somebody asked him to do like a normal human. It just, it just wasn't at all anywhere near his head. And that was really funny. I, that I enjoyed because it was like, um, it was like a, a flop without the flop sweat. And, and then, the, uh, but the alternative would have been unthinkable. Like what, Elmore Leonard's gonna get this weird thing I did, that cra- that's even crazier. So yeah, that was great. And those, I mean, the genre stuff for me is in some ways the hardest. I mean, when you had uh, Harlan Coben on before, I, I read a lot, of, uh, a lot of that. And I'm all, in a way I'm the most admiring because to keep, a, to keep the energy to repeat without repeating, to stay in that groove and not worry that you have to challenge yourself in these artificial ways where you're getting out of it. I really admire that. And I don't know, it's very different from my brain, but I, but I think it's fascinating as a, I don't know again, what the music equivalent is. Is it like a, I mean, are there people who you just think, Jesus Christ, this person done the same thing for 50 years and they're still
1: good at it? Well, are- maybe it would be like the, the cramps, you know, how the cramps, you know, album after album, but it, I'm only talking about four albums, you know. Right, and, and at a certain point, sort exactly. of at a certain point, it became bikini girls with chainsaws. Where you're like, okay, all right, now you're just doing the same thing over and over again.
2: Yeah, it's uh, that's an interesting thing. I mean, that's the the first couple Ramones records too, where you think you guys have discovered this magical thing. Does it have legs? And it turns out it sort of doesn't. I mean, you, it doesn't. It doesn't. You can move a little closer to metal. You can. You know, you can shorten up the songs, you can move a little closer to acid rock, but really those first four albums are the template. And I don't know, or you, you know, you can do rock and roll high school, but, but it's right. It's not, I don't know. Do you, I guess as we get close to the end, I have a question for you, which is, so we all challenge ourselves creatively. And when you were, you've obviously moved long past what you were capable of as a teenager, as a songwriter, not doing other kinds of writing, are there still, um, undiscovered continents where you think I've never tried this kind of song. I know the people who do it well. I wonder if I could be one of those people or is, or is it too uh,
1: exhausting or maybe even irrelevant to your project? No, I think about that stuff all the time. I find that uh, this comes up a lot on these. I find that when you try to calculate the thing you're doing to land a certain way, score points with a certain group of people, whether it's the record label, the radio stations, or even the fans, uh, that calculation is its own sort of death knell for the art. Right. Um, But the thing I'm making a solo record right now, that's, that feels very different. I don't know if the experience of listening to it will, it'll be obvious that it is very different, but even, even within that, I, I just went in and did another song for the record that was, Um, the furthest I've gone down a road that I hadn't really ever traveled down. And, and, and that was the one where I realized uh, after day one of the song, too far, this was too far. I don't know. I do not feel comfortable wearing this suit of clothes. So, you know, I'm going to find this other one that, that feels good. But, you know, even then I was challenging myself and doing something that was weird. Like you said, it shouldn't have worked. And that's why it was art, whether or not it does work, I would rather fail and have it be, Um, authentic, then have it succeed. And I'm just like, you know, walking a well-trodden path, pretending to be someone else.
2: I mean, the the movie, when I watch movies, movie directors are to me the clearest case because it's so collaborative and there's so much money of other people's invested in it. So when really good directors make bad or problematic movies, right, I love that. I, I, I love that you could be so good at something, arguably the best in the world, and you marshal your whole team, which has done this with you before, and you have access to the best actors and the best script polishers, and yet it's a disaster. And, and, and those works, not you know, in, in music and in, in literature as well, those are the ones that fascinate me the most. And, you know, when you, when you first are learning about music and someone says, this is the worst Bob Dylan record, you know, whatever, whether it's <laughs> Under the Red Sky is the one that people said or whatever, I get obsessed. And I think, what does that mean? Is it just a lack of, is it just boredom? Is it a lack of inspiration? That's one kind. Or like you say, is it an ambition w- that wasn't able to be realized for very interesting reasons? That's the question. And it all comes down to this thing I was saying before about there not being objective markers for any of this. There's rough audience response markers, but the objectivity, I, I for a while I was doing the Spelling Bee circuit. Oh, actually, when it, Roseanne, Cash is a a former spelling champion and I'm a good speller and I would do this thing and I would win these spelling bees. And that's an objective subculture within the literary culture. You just go out and you hit your marks and you spell and I guess people are impressed and whatever, but it's a funny way of picking up a weird little tiny shard of ego in something that doesn't really have this in it. There, There isn't that kind of attainable, uh objective satisfaction in in writing and yet you spell well and people say wow that's impressive as if it's somehow connected to the rest of this which it's really not it just feels like it is for a moment so i love i i wouldn't say i want you to do the thing that's a failure and what little i've heard um does seem new honestly of this of this new record i mean just i don't know the technical i mean i know what i hear that's different you know in the way of orchestration or instrumentation and, and, or the shape of a song. I don't know what it is that you're actually uh, um, doing that you think is different. But yeah, in a weird way, I would like that. The kind of, I wouldn't say noble failure, but the illuminating failure. You know, we all know that we can do the thing that we do. And maybe it's important to keep doing it. It probably is if it finds an audience and people respond to it. But yeah, the other one is more fun, more frightening, and maybe more rewarding later you know we're as i said we're all going to go and then later they can pick through it until that guy drops his glasses in the twilight zone and then i'm out of luck you can still (laughs) listen to records but not me anymore but i guess audiobooks he'll have audiobooks uh so yeah i mean it's it's i want to keep doing it i mean this is silly this sounds like a child's thing but i i want to keep doing it i want to keep finding ways to do it different ways to do it that's part of what i like about the technology changes i i hope i can find the equivalent of that vending machine or the fake gallery show on the post but for fiction and i think i can i mean i don't know that these old methods are going to be around that much i mean people you know like when people say oh vinyl's back yeah whatever. i mean okay (laughs) you know yes collectors yes hipster collectors vinyl's back but like what we saw as kids, and I, I was a cassette kid more than anything because they were the cheapest. I've watched the form change, your form change, you know, five or six whole times. LPs that my parents had, eight tracks that I was a little too young for, but I got cassettes, CDs, streaming. It, it's None of it's the same. And, and it changes everything about what people in your position have to do. Books have been the same for a long time, but they just get smaller they become you know boutique items so uh yeah i mean when we do this again in 50
1: years for the wheels off 50 we'll see what's happening well i love this you know what's funny without even me realizing it we're now three times as long as a normal wheels off interview Good. which, is I, didn't which is I mean i knew sort of but. it it's kind of great and uh, i could do this all day with you i love i love talking to you but more than that i love listening to you and and um i'm i think people are going to love this and so i guess but you know what we could re- reprise this this is going to be about the 99th episode of wheels off so maybe around 200 we'll come back together and just see where we're at
2: or you can call someone and do a quick other one so that this is 100 and then that'll pay off the (laughs) insane length that we're asking people but maybe you know what that's what
1: producers are for they can chop it it'll just just take every third word it'll i say that'll make sense when i go record an introduction i'll warn people but i'll also tell them that if they want to spend an hour and a half listening to, to you and me talk it's time well spent An hour and a half. Oh, my God. I apologize now to these people as much as
2: I apologize to the mentors and the mentees. It's um, But not those assholes in Miami. (laughs) Well, the thing that's funny, I remember being on the plane again, but coming back from Sanibel, and and we can uh, wrap on this, is that it does erase time. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, though, I love my wife and my children and my parents and my siblings. And the only thing I really care about is trying to figure out how ideas move through expressive forms that's really it and and so it it doesn't seem like time to me because as you've said things and you've you know you make observations or i even look at what's behind you on the wall and it, they, they connect to ideas you know I, I i think about all of those things about you know mark Boland's car accident and you know whatever all. And they matter. They seem like future plots or future in- sources of inspiration. And so, yeah, I mean, we could probably go another hour just talking about T-Rex and how you hone that sound. I mean, that's a very strange case to me. We won't. But like going out of weird folk frippery into that kind of T-Rex sound, how you know when you get there. Do you just know because you are succeeding? Or did he know? I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, all, all of these questions are all I – it's all I – do. So you've just gotten a window into what people who are living in my house have to suffer through 24 (laughs) hours. (laughs) a day, They never can be free of it. it. You can click a little red button and be done. They have to suffer constantly.
1: (laughs) Oh, Ben, thank you so much. You're so great. I'm so glad that I got to have this time with you. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. This was great. And uh, I will uh, see you in the real world soon.
1: Yes. Every day. Thanks, y'all.
0: Osiris. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But The Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Haydn, Backstreets magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Numbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform. And we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!